Chapter 7 In Henry V, Shakespeare says, Fair set the wind for France. But on this occasion, there was rather more wind than we wanted. We went across from Tilbury on an American Liberty ship until the coast of France was about one mile off. My troop was then transferred to a tank landing craft. The captain of the landing craft was an American, and he called out to me, Lieutenant, will you please come up here? I went up to the little bridge, and he asked me where he wanted to be landed, and I told him, Gold Beach. Oh, he said, I don't know where that would be. This was a bit of a setback, because the arrangement was that the Navy was responsible for getting us to the right place. Anyway, he said, I know a nice spot where you won't even get your feet wet. In fact, he was right, and we didn't get our feet wet, but it took us an hour or two to find our way to the place where we were supposed to be. There was nothing very dramatic going on along the coast. The heavy fighting had all been done the day before. There was still some shell fire and the occasional German fighter plane shooting up the landing area, but nothing really heavy. I'm not going to give you an account of the advance through Normandy. You can read it up in the historical records, and in any case, my memory's now confused as to which event came before or after another. I will just give you a general impression and fill in a few details in which I was personally involved. It was the job of the 4th Field Squadron to clear obstacles, mines, and build bridges where required, to make it possible for the 7th Armoured Division to move over the ground. In the early days of the campaign, our tanks didn't have any serious opposition from German tanks. Fortunately, Hitler had held back his Panzer Division to defend Calais, because he believed that the Normandy landings were a diversion. Eventually, of course, he realised his mistake and moved his panzers into Normandy. At this point, I'd like to make a few remarks on the general principles of tank fighting. To simplify the business, the intention was that our tanks should have a gun that would make a hole in the enemy tanks, and that our tanks had armour that the enemy guns couldn't penetrate. Naturally, the Germans had the same idea, but unfortunately for us, they did it better. The 7th Armoured Division met the German Tiger tanks at Vierbocage, and it was a massacre. The German guns went right through our tanks, and our tank guns couldn't get through the German armour. We had to withdraw, which is the technical word for running away. It was Muggins' job, me and my troop being Muggins, to be the last to leave, and to mine the road as we went. I'd already experienced this rather spooky task at Alam Halfa in North Africa, and had the same feelings again. Everything's suddenly so quiet. Our own troops have gone, and the enemy doesn't yet realise this. We were lucky. The German tanks didn't come that night, and we managed to get to Tilly sur seul without any trouble, having laid mines in the roads behind us. At Tilly, we had another battle but somehow managed to fight some sort of rearguard action. There's a dead straight road north of Tee with poplars in a line on each side of it. These trees had all been cut off at the base by gunfire. The fields all around us were full of dead cows and occasional horses, their bodies blown up like barrage balloons, and their four legs sticking up in the air. There was the slightly sweet, nauseating smell of death everywhere. And it wasn't only from dead animals. It was in a farm somewhere near T.E. 
where I saw my men really frightened. The only time a group of them ran past me in a mad panic. I thought the entire German Panzer Corps must be behind them. Then I saw what the panic was about and ran too. They'd knocked over a beehive and the whole swarm was chasing them. Somehow the tide of battle changed in our favour and we started advancing again. The next big battle was for KN. I remember the division of tanks advancing and the anti-tank guns of the Germans firing at us and hoped that the German gunners wouldn't waste a shot on my armoured car but would concentrate on the tanks. We took KN, what was left of it. It was nearly all reduced to rubble. I managed to find a ground floor room for us for the night, which kept off the rain, and in the morning I discovered it must have been part of the bishop's palace. In a cupboard there was a magnificent silver chalice. We left this where we found it, but I don't know if the bishop ever got it back. My next fairly clear memory is of a town called Saint-Pierre-sur-Dive. This was the only town apart from Bayeux that was almost left standing. We had a rather sick joke about this and said it evidently had not been liberated. A very kind French family invited me to spend the night in their house and I was delighted to accept. For weeks we'd all been sleeping in slit trenches because the Luftwaffe knew exactly where to find us and bombed us every night. It poured with rain night after night and I looked forward to having a roof over my head for a change. The French family, father, mother and rather good-looking daughter wanted to spend the night in their air raid shelter in the garden. That night I went to bed in clean sheets. I took with me my revolver and an electric torch, just in case. Of what, I'm not sure, but not all the French were as pro-allies as one might expect, or so we'd been warned. The German bombers came and bombed the town from end to end. The plaster fell from my bedroom ceiling and the windows rattled but didn't break. Then it was quiet. Not a sound except for the creak of my bedroom door. I sat up in bed with my revolver in one hand and my torch in the other. I felt a light pressure on my foot and then a light pressure creeping up my leg. Was it the daughter or the assassin? I didn't raise my hopes too much, but it was an interesting situation. I switched on my torch and looked straight into the eyes of a very small and very frightened kitten. This story has a very sad ending. The German bombs that had missed the house made a direct hit on the air raid shelter, and all the family were killed. I'm sometimes asked, weren't you ever frightened? And of course I was, many times. But I still remember one occasion when I was more frightened than ever. I'd been sent on a night patrol to have a look at a deep ditch or cutting to see if it would be an obstacle to our tanks. The snag was that the Germans were occupying this ditch at the time. There was an open field in front of the ditch and hedges running across the field on either side. Although the hedges would have given me some cover, it seemed likely that the enemy would be particularly careful to watch there, so I decided to creep across in the middle of the field. It was a pitch-dark night and I thought I might just get away with it. Suddenly something alerted the Germans and they fired up several very lights, which lit up like full daylight and at the same time they opened up with two or more machine guns. The grass was only a few inches high and I felt sure the enemy could see me. 
They raked the field from side to side for what seemed like hours, but was probably only about twenty minutes. The field was quite flat. There was nowhere to hide, and I expected to feel my body raked by machine gun fire. I remember a rather silly thought passing through my mind. I said to myself that I'd willingly pay £2,000 to be in Scott's Bar in Piccadilly instead of in that field in Normandy. It was a silly thought because, apart from anything else, I wouldn't have been able to raise £2,000. Somehow or other I survived and always remembered that moment every time I went to Scott's Bar after the war. Like so many great watering holes in London, today Scott's Bar no longer exists. After this completely unsuccessful venture, I was told to take a look at the ditch from the air, and accordingly I was taken up in a Lysander, which is a small aeroplane used for artillery spotting. It was the same plane as was flown by Brian Gibb in Italy. Brian was a great friend of the family and was the godfather of my eldest daughter. He was one of the very few army officers to be awarded the DFC. Unfortunately, my pilot got lost and decided to come down low to have a look at where we were. One Normandy village looks very like another from the air, the same stone Norman church and the same square with people walking around in it. The people, I noticed, were wearing grey uniforms and shooting at us, so we made a rather sharp exit. I never did get to see that ditch and it didn't really make any difference because the next attack didn't go in that direction. I can't say that we liked the Germans, but... We were always impressed by their technical skills, particularly in camouflage. I can remember overhearing a conversation over our radio which went rather like this. Do you see the haystacks in the field in front of us? The third one from the left just moved. They'd disguised their anti-tank guns to look like Normandy haystacks. About that time, I had a personal experience of their ability at camouflage and also of their discipline. The 22nd Armoured Brigade, to which our squadron was attached, was commanded by a delightful chap called Brigadier Hines. He was affectionately known as Looney Hines, because, unlike the Duke of Plazzatoro, who led his regiment from behind, Looney Hines led very much from the front. For some reason I'd been sent to see the Brigadier and was told I'd find him somewhere along the road. So off I went in my small armoured car until I came to a village called Ifs. It means yew trees in French. There was no one there. The village appeared to be completely deserted apart from a few chickens wandering about in the square. Naturally, I and my driver tried without any success to catch one for dinner. After that, we went back the way we'd come and came across the brigadier who was briefing his officers for an attack on, yes, you've guessed it, Ifs. I very wisely kept my mouth shut about our little visit to Ifs, and later that day the armoured brigade met with very heavy anti-tank fire from Ifs. I sometimes wonder what thoughts must have been in the minds of the German anti-tank gunners as they watched two silly Englanders chasing chickens. They obviously thought that we were not an important enough target to be worth giving away their position by shooting us. My next memories about Liveroux famous for its excellent cheese. There was no fighting in Liveroux, and in a way I can claim to have liberated it, as my armoured car was the first vehicle to pass through it. Near Liveroux there was a small stream spanned by a bridge that had been blown up by the enemy. It was to be the job of my troop to build a bailey bridge over the stream. 
While we were waiting for the equipment to arrive, I noticed there was a driveway leading to a large farmhouse, and then beyond it, crossing over the stream by way of another small bridge. I reckoned this bridge was strong enough to take up to five tonnes, so I made a diversion for vehicles up to five tonnes to go round that way. The equipment arrived, and we built our little bailey bridge over the stream. And when we had finished, the farmer invited me and my number two, Dick Turpin, to have lunch with him. There was the farmer, his wife, two daughters and a son, and the curé, who, if I understood correctly, had come from Dinard. The farmer very proudly opened some bottles of burgundy that he'd buried in his garden so that the Germans wouldn't find it. He'd promised himself that he'd open it up on the day he was liberated. I didn't know then that I was to meet him twice more. The next day I was sent for by the new general commanding the 7th Armoured Division. I'm afraid I can't remember his name, but have an impression that his appointment was a very unpopular one with the 7th Armoured. He'd been appointed by Monty because the previous general had pointed out that the German anti-tank guns made holes in his tanks. The general ordered me to go and look at the bridge that had been blown up, and to let him know whether the gap could be spanned by a turtle, which was a very ingenious bridge folded up on the top of a tank. Off I went in a jeep along a lane through woods and fields. I stopped briefly at a gap in the hedge, from where I could see the top of the big church of Lisieux, a town still occupied by the Germans. It was at that moment that a young girl of about eight or nine years old came up to me and gave me a red rose. At that time I didn't know about St. Teresa of Lisieux, or of her strange connection with red roses, and I might now think that the little episode was all in my imagination, but I still had the rose in my buttonhole when I was shot, and the rose was certainly real. When I came to a bend in the lane, there was a fairly large red brick building, and by it there was a small group of soldiers and one tank. I was told that the bridge I'd come to see was about a hundred yards round the corner of the building and that the road was covered by a German machine gun. One can't disobey an order from a general, so I said that I had to go and take a look at the bridge. I also said that it would be nice and helpful if the tank came with me, in the hope that perhaps the German machine gunner would be frightened of the tank. So... I proceeded along the road, followed by the tank, and nothing happened until I reached the bridge. I could see that half the bridge, the left side, had been blown, and that for some reason the explosive charges on the right side of the bridge hadn't been blown. There was some wire running to the explosives, but for some reason the explosives hadn't been fired. So I simply pulled out the detonator. At that moment the German machine gunner opened fire, and I felt a great deal of pain in my right arm. I ran like hell. The pain in my arm was so bad that I didn't know that I had also been shot through the chest. I only found out about that when I felt a wet patch on my back and discovered it was blood. Somehow I was taken up by jeep to the forward dressing station, which happened to be in the same farmhouse, and my wounds were dressed by the farmer's daughter. The farmer asked me if I'd like a glass of champagne, and... I thanked him and said I'd rather have some of that excellent burgundy that he'd given me the day before. This answer must have impressed him because, forty years later, June and I visited the area to find out whether the farmhouse was still there. It was, and when we knocked on the door, the same farmer, looking a little older, opened the door. When I asked him if he recognised me, he said, Oh yes, you were the officer who preferred burgundy to champagne.' 